You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In light of yesterday's announcement of the Orca submarine pathway, David Rowe speaks to ASPE's Beck Shrimpton and Dr Malcolm Davis about the pathway, what it means for Australia, the costs and the risks, and the role of AUKUS in deterrence and regional security. Welcome to the ASPE podcast. I'm David Rowe. We're about 24 hours after the big AUKUS announcement between Australia, the United States and United Kingdom. It's been a very interesting and very busy 24 hours. And to help us unpack it a bit more, we've got Beck Shrimpton, an ASPE director, and Dr. Malcolm Davis, a senior analyst with the Institute. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. It's good to be here. Yeah. Hi, Dave. Malcolm, let's start with you. We've talked a bit at ASPE about the deterrent effect of submarines and of AUKUS more generally. Just explain how a nuclear submarine is an improvement on a conventional sub and how that contributes to a stronger deterrent effect. Well, nuclear submarines can definitely be seen as the apex predator of the ocean, even more so than a conventional submarine. We have a conventional submarine that runs on batteries and diesel electric engines. The sub needs to surface every now and then to snort uh, in order to recharge those batteries. If it wants to run on diesels, it's very noisy. And of course, in submarine warfare, silence is golden. A nuclear-powered submarine can stay underwater for months. The limit of its endurance is essentially how much food is on board. So it has superior endurance on station, it has superior speed, has superior manoeuvrability. The power generation levels from the nuclear reactor are vastly greater than what you get from either a diesel motor or an electric motor. And that allows it to have more capable sensors and systems and operate a, a much greater range of, of capabilities. So there's no comparison really between diesel electric submarines and nuclear submarines. Some people say, well, diesel electrics are quieter. That's no longer really the case. Um, the Virginia class nuclear submarines that we'll be getting from about 2032, 2033 are just as quiet in many respects as diesel electrics. So I think that we are getting a much more capable platform with nuclear-powered submarines than what we would be getting if we stuck with conventional diesel-electric submarines. We're talking about deterring China, uh, of course, here. Richard Miles Beck has talked about putting a question in the mind of the adversary. Can you just talk us through what China would be thinking about this type of capability in Australia's hands? What sort of additional questions would it put in, in China's mind in some sort of scenario? Yeah, that is an excellent question and goes to the heart of why this is such a qualitatively different capability to the Collins and to anything we've considered before. This really complicates the calculation for the PLA. It is going to be far more difficult for it to, to guess or anticipate range, to have any confidence that it can, you know, that it can track. It's going to put more submarines in the region in the water, not only in Australian hands, but you know, just in the region more generally, which will be very unwelcome uh, for China because these are such powerful, stealthy uh, weapons. So they are one of those. Malcolm described this as the apex predator of the sea. They they are one of the key deterrent capabilities that really make a difference in your order of battle. There's been a lot of attention, not surprisingly, on the cost. Everyone's very interested in the two hundred and sixty-eight to three hundred and sixty-eight billion dollar price range. Let's just talk about the counterfactual here. I, I quite like thought experiments that look at project forward and, and think about what the alternatives might be. So 
leaving aside for a moment the specifics around you know what might have happened if we'd stuck with the with the French, broadly speaking, in terms of making a big investment in in defence, uh, entering into this kind of major collaboration and cooperation with partners who are as capable as the United States and the United Kingdom. Malcolm, perhaps starting with you, just talk about what kind of trajectory we could be on if we were not doing these things. Let's say we underinvested in defence, if we sort of went it alone and didn't partner so closely with the United States and the United Kingdom, where might we be in 20, 30, 50 years' time and what might the costs down the track be? Well, look, if, if the environment had been like it was, say, 20 years ago, it, it, we could afford to get away with spending a lot less on defence. But the reality is we're in a much more strategically adverse and unpredictable environment that is characterised by a rising China that is determined to impose its interests and its agenda on the region in what it calls a community of common destiny, uh, which is really a Chinese hegemonic sphere of influence. Now, whether the US is there by our side or not, uh, we have to respond to that challenge. So I think that uh, if we had gone down the path of saying, well, look, we're not going to respond to this challenge, really, we're going to continue to coast on with defence at a relatively low level, then we'd be in a world of trouble because we would suddenly be faced by an aggressive China uh, that can dictate to us uh, its interests. You know, in 2020, um, they gave us a list of 14 grievances, which were really demands. I would put to you that if we hadn't taken defence seriously, if we hadn't spent seriously on defence, uh, and we were facing a, a Chinese sphere of influence, then we'd get many such lists. So we are spending a lot more on defence. It is going to go up. We're talking, for the subs, we're talking about $368 billion over 30 years. That's 0.15% of the uh, entire budget, which is not a lot when you consider it amortised over over 30 years. It's not just the subs. We actually have to get serious about defence spending in general. Twice now, Richard Miles has said uh, defence spending will go up to 2.2%. That's currently at 2% GDP. That's not a huge leap. I suspect that after AUKUS and after the DSR, we are going to have to significantly boost defence spending a lot more than 2.2%. I would say that, you know, irrespective of whether the US is with us or, or if we're by ourselves, probably talking a minimum of 3 to 3.5% of GDP on defence if we want to get serious about protecting ourselves. That's uh, kind of US levels in terms of percentage of GDP. Beck, any thoughts on that? I would just say um, it's, it's an interesting question to think about. What if we didn't go this particular route? What if we didn't invest in in the subs? Now, for now, there is no comparable capability. So I think it's it's a really obvious choice for investment. What is interesting to me is that it's very hard to predict where technology will go over the time frame that these subs will be delivered. But this comes back to why collaboration and cooperation is important and it's as important on the subs as it is on the technologies behind them. That is the nuclear propulsion element for the subs, but it is the pillar two set of technologies as well. We've only got a chance of staying ahead if we collaborate and we really bring the very best of these three ecosystems plus more. Right? So we need to also think about how we use this AUKUS construct as something of a hub. Um, so we're really increasing the amount of effort across the board, not just on keeping subs the apex predator that they are, but on understanding where technology is going and making sure that some of those technologies don't render the subs uh, not the kind of capability that they are today. 
And that's plausible, I think, when you start to think about where we're going with some radar technologies and with space capabilities. So again, you know, just keeping those parallel tracks going, there is absolutely, this is not an endeavour the US can do on its own, the UK can do on its own, certainly not one we can do on our own. So this collaborative aspect is incredibly important. Yeah, and I would add into that, you know, when you look at AUKUS Pillar 2, talks about advanced undersea warfare, it talks about AI and autonomous systems. Those all tie in with the nuclear submarines in the sense that future undersea warfare is all really going to be about um, manned autonomous teaming underwater. It's going to be about nuclear submarines with crews on board working with advanced, large, uh, unmanned underwater vehicles, sort of things that Boeing is doing with Orca. That sort of potential allows us to add mass to our capability so that we're not just limited to eight SSNs. We have eight SSNs plus large numbers of unmanned underwater vehicles that work as a team that can connect through quantum technologies or laser optical communications to have a networked undersea battle space. That really enables us to do a lot more and future-proof that capability against the sort of technology surprises that maybe might be coming out of China. It's obviously a huge undertaking. I mean, the, the, the submarine program alone is enormous. There will be considerable risks. I don't think anyone doubts that. Perhaps you first, Beck, if you were to single out one or two of the risks, what would they be? Well, the key risks to me are the technology transfer capability. You know, political intent and political statements are one thing, but the practicalities of making this happen are another. Um, we have had for years high-level statements, including at Osmin, that we will do better on this and that we will we will share technologies and we will share information. And it has not led to a substantive shift in the way that we do business. This deal requires a substantive shift in the way that we do business. So for me, breaking through those barriers, and they are process barriers, they are culture barriers, they are classification barriers, they are genuine industrial capability barriers as well. So there are a lot of risks here, but I think, again, the, the key to getting past them is is really the collaboration aspect, but it's going to require a lot of creative thinking. It's going to require breaking a lot of systems that currently exist and changing a lot of ways of doing business. Is there bureaucratic inertia on those systems that, you know, if we simply start collaborating, just the incentive to, to, to kind of break through that inertia will hopefully follow? I would have thought that that there was imperative before now. But what I think and I hope that this AUKUS arrangement and the subs in particular drives is that that project. You know, I think what's been missing is a general will, a general understanding that we have to do better, we have to integrate better. Um, what's been missing is that pathfinder project that identifies and breaks every barrier that you hit along the way. We've not had a project of significance that has successfully made that path through export regimes, ITAR, even just policy and procedure around acquisition and sustainment in the United States, for example. So um, I'm hoping that this is the project of substance that creates it, but there hasn't been, I mean, there's been will before, you know, there just has not been that breakthrough idea or concept or commitment. Um, so I hope this is it. Hopefully the political buy-in uh, really forces it through or raises it to the surface. Yeah. Pardon the pun. Uh, Malcolm, uh, risk. Look, um, this is our Apollo moment, okay? Failure is not an option here. 
there's so much invested into AUKUS, not just in terms of the nuclear submarines, but also in terms of Pillar 2 collaboration across a range of technologies and, more importantly, the strategic relationship now between Australia, the US and the United Kingdom. AUKUS elevates us to something above a middle power. I don't think it's quite defined just yet, but we are clearly no longer a middle power. We're moving up above that level. If we fail in this, then the Americans will never trust us again with such an important defence cooperation agreement. Uh, we will lose so much in terms of our strategic credibility in the international community. So we have to make this work. We have to sit down with the Americans and the Brits and work together, not just on Pillar 1, but also Pillar 2 technologies uh, to de develop capabilities and develop them as quickly as we can. The AUKUS submarines are going to be a longer-term capability. We won't get the first of Virginias until 2032, 33. We won't get the first AUKUS SSNs until the early 2040s. Where we need to make gains very quickly is in Pillar 2 because we have this risk that in sometime in the second half of this decade we'll be facing a major crisis with China over Taiwan. We have to be ready for that. So we can't let AUKUS become divorced from the strategic context at which, against which it is set. And I think that the risk is that uh, we lose sight of that. The other risk, I would say, is a political one. You know, if there's a, a change of government in the United States or if there's a change of government here in Australia, suddenly the focus on AUKUS is lost. Uh, you know, maybe America retreats in, into some sort of destructive neo-isolationist phase. That would be a terrible tragedy if everything falls apart because you have a sudden change of government in Washington, D.C. So we have to build bridges, not just with the leadership, but with the policy community and the technology community in, in the United States and the U.K. so that we are future-proofing AUKUS that to survive, even if you have um, a different leader in the Oval Office that maybe doesn't understand the way the world works today. Future-proofing, are there mechanisms for future-proofing? Something like that. Beck, any thoughts? Well, I think what is really interesting and the reason that Australia, UK and US have come together under AUKUS here is that we have such a history of working together, of interoperability being a key driver behind our capability decisions, of exchange, not only of information intelligence but personnel. Um, what that has built over decades is an entanglement that despite very high-level political leadership changing, it's very difficult to unpick. So I do think that one of the things that does mitigate the risk of potential change at the political level is the fact that bureaucratically our three countries are deeply, deeply enmeshed. And even if we really wanted to step away and step back from some of this, once you start on this path and you make that, you know, that first commitment, it's actually pretty hard to start walking this back. So um, that, that's what I would offer on that. And point. we saw that during the Trump administration, Correct. didn't we? Whatever yeah, we the, did. the, the yeah. views in the Oval Office yeah. itself, much of the American system continued on a, I want to say even keel, it's really hard to avoid. Uh, it's amazing how many puns, uh, how many uh, sayings we, we have uh, involved. Uh, and another Na naval one is, and maritime is references. ballast, right? They often, they often say it's, it's the institutional connections provide ballast. They're all, they're all sea references. <laughs> um, I mean, jobs and uh, sorry, skills and workforce is 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 one that occurs to me, and and it's one that's been raised a lot in the commentary that we've seen in the last twenty four hours. Uh, big ramp up required in Australia, as well as the other countries. 
are we going to get the kind of skills and workforce we need here in Australia just by kind of doing more of what we've been doing in the past? Or do we really need to just have a real rethink here, a, a genuine overhaul, whether it's building an entirely new, you know, institution of some kind, a university, these sorts of things? I mean, will it require a really radical step? Look, I think it will. Um, we can't just drift on and assume that somehow she'll be right, mate, you know, in terms of an attitude. I think that we, we have an opportunity here. This is a challenge for us, but a challenge can be turned into an opportunity rather than a risk. If we invest in developing those skills and that infrastructure to be able to support uh, the nuclear submarines, uh, it opens up all sorts of possibilities you know, in terms of strategic burden sharing with the Americans and with the Brits. Down the track, and I know this is a contentious issue, but you know, if we do end up having a debate about nuclear civil power, well, then we have that expertise base to be able to have that debate in a more informed fashion, which we don't have now. So I do think that we should see this as an opportunity to develop that skills base to start getting nuclear engineering and nuclear physics courses going at universities to have people um, going over to the United States uh, and the United Kingdom to work and gain the skills and to build the infrastructure, the physical infrastructure to support these boats here. Uh, and, you know, the news breaking this morning that actually, yes, we are going to have to to um, keep the waste here, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, a bit of a surprise given the nature of the reactor technology on the Virginia class. So we're going to have to develop the skills and the infrastructure to be able to do that as well. So we have a lot to do. It's a, it's a risk, but it also is an opportunity in my opinion. Beck, do you have any big ideas on how we get around this? Yeah, I think we have to be. I think we do have to think really radically. Um, we we cannot just uh, ramp up. It is entirely the wrong approach. We have to be thinking leapfrog. We have to be thinking leveraging the specific strengths of the various partners in this. Look, I think the other thing we need to do that uh, I don't think we've historically done very well is make sure that this particular initiative and this policy from the government connects really closely with other really big policies from the government. So the advanced manufacturing investment initiative, this is this is key. If we can mesh together big policy ideas from this government in ways that make them mutually reinforcing, um, then we do have a chance of realising something that the PM laid out in his speech when AUKUS, when when the submarine announcement was made. And that is is about realising industry-wide benefit and building entirely new sort of industries within this country. It's possible to do that, but if we look at the submarines in isolation and think workforce, submarines, skills, submarines, we're not going to get there. We are not going to get there. We're going to have to really bring some coherence to the big ideas that the government's already got on the table and then we need to think beyond the nation to how we how we pull that together with what our various partners in the, in the UK and the US are doing. So it's complex. It's a really complex picture. It's doable but it, but it really it's going to take a, a, a really important uh, rethink and we're going to have to be very creative. So the phased approach of uh, of increased rota- well uh, increased visits from the US and the UK, more training, uh, then into the Virginia class uh, acquisition from uh, by Australia, and then finally into the AUKUS SN. I mean, it does give us a kind of a window, a kind of a period in which to ramp up. Just can I get each of your views, starting with you, perhaps Beck on just an evaluation of, of the phased approach. I mean, is it given the circumstances that we're in now, is that the right approach? Uh, do you, Does it look like it should work to you? 
I don't mind it. I know that it's been described as a bit of a Frankenstein. I I really think it's it's practical, um, and I think it will. I mean, if we were if we were to, if we had gone sort of for for a single gold-plated solution in the first instance, that I think the risks of us not getting there would have been much greater. So a lot of work has been put into this and it looks a bit bitsy and it looks like we end up with different boats and it does look sort of transitional, but I actually think it's it's quite well thought through and it does give us the greatest chance of staging success, if you like, and then being able to take our measure on where we're at and what we need to change, what we need to adjust to stay on the right path. And that's really important because it's such a long project. The time frame for this is, is enormous, right? So I think, you know, this transitional approach is fine. I also don't mind that we end up operating different capabilities and, and you know, learning different skills and having different experiences and ultimately end up with the three nations operating different boats, right, which I think is going to happen. That for me, from a deterrence perspective, complicates the picture for a potential adversary. If we all had everything exactly the same, then should an adversary crack the code, so to speak, on the capability, then we're, then we're all gone, right? So there's this idea of resilience in in hybridity and, and difference and divergence. Um, and I actually don't mind that. It, although this does look, you know, on the surface of it like a bit of a Frankenstein's monster, I think it's actually quite pragmatic. That's really interesting. Malcolm? Yeah, look, I agree with Beck. Um, I think that it's a sensible approach. It gives us a time period to prepare the sort of workforce and the skill base and the infrastructure to support these boats. You know, three to five Virginias from about 2032 to 2033 is a sensible move. I do think we need to be ready to maybe expand that by, for example, if the SSN AUKUS class is delayed, which it probably will be. So we need to be flexible in that regard. And we need to be flexible in terms of the number of boats we get ultimately, given the strategic environment and how that shapes up. So I, I see the current approach of three to five uh, SSNs, uh, Virginias, and then the SSN AUKUS as the starting point. But it has to have a degree of flexibility based on the threat that we're facing. And um, I think that you know it can really enable us to do a lot more in terms of naval capability, um, naval development that can be applied to other aspects of our naval force and our defence force. And I agree with the the idea that, you know, uh, in terms of operating multiple classes, there's nothing magical about having one class of everything. You look at what we're doing in air uh, with the, the F-35, the F-A-18F, EA-18G. Uh, I put it to you that, you know, in the next um, 20 years, we might be looking at NGAD to work with the F-35. So we have multiple classes of fighter aircraft that we're operating simultaneously. We can do exactly the same thing uh, we have submarines. We can have Virginias. We can have SSN AUKUS. We can have a range of autonomous systems, including extra large EUVs. Um, it all works, uh, providing we develop the skill base to support it. Very interesting, guys. Thanks to both of you. Of course, we've still got the Defence Strategic Review coming up. Hopefully, there'll be more to say on AUKUS Pillar 2 as well fairly shortly. So uh, plenty more to talk about. Hopefully, we'll get you both back on the podcast soon. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.